Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 38, The Dark Waters of Trasimene. Last time, we saw how Hannibal's army inflicted a series of crushing defeats on the overconfident Romans, culminating in the freezing battle of the River Trebia. Today, we will cover how the Romans grappled with Hannibal yet again, this time by the shores of Lake Trasimene. Despite the frigid weather following the Battle of the River Trebia in the early months of 217 BC, Hannibal did not allow the Romans sheltering within the garrison town of Placentia any time to rest. Detachments of Numidian raiders scoured the plains about, while bands of Celtiberians and Lusitanians ambushed Roman patrols in the hills. The country grew so disordered that supplies could only be ferried into Placentia via the Po River. Thus, the remnants of the Roman army from Trebia were able to offer no assistance when Hannibal stormed the local trading towns around them, further securing his hold on the Po Valley. Following these exploits, however, the cold intensified to a point that even the hardy Carthaginians were forced into winter quarters. Hannibal remained energetic as ever, though, turning from the war in the field to winning hearts and minds. Large numbers of Romans and their Italian allies had fallen into his hands at Trebia, and Hannibal from the start treated these prisoners in markedly different ways. He placed the Romans on starvation rations and refused to ransom them, but the Italians were well-fed and given comfortable quarters. Later, Hannibal took this generous treatment a step further, convening the Italian prisoners and saying that he was releasing them without ransom since he had come to Italy not to war on them, but on the Romans who had stolen their freedom, promising to restore to each city-state the lands and cities the Romans had taken from them. Having presented himself as a liberator of Italy, he then dismissed the Italians back to their home cities, hoping to drive a further wedge between Rome and her Italian Socii. Meanwhile, the Second Punic War continued in other theaters. As we will remember from episode 35, Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio, brother to Scipio the consul who had sought to confront Hannibal in Italy, had been dispatched by his brother to Spain with 20,000 legionaries to carry the war to the Barcid stronghold. The consul Scipio's decision to send his brother on to Spain is all the more remarkable since Hannibal had just slipped past him and was en route to Italy. Yet he delegated his more experienced troops to his brother Gnaeus and returned to face the Carthaginians with raw recruits. Scipio believed that Rome's strategy must be to strike at the Barcid base in Spain, preventing reinforcements from passing to Hannibal overland through Gaul and diverting further Carthaginian resources to defend this valuable province. This belief would prove pivotal to the outcome of the Second Punic War. Landing at the Greek town of Emporium in what is now modern-day Catalonia, Gnaeus made quick work of the regional Carthaginian commander, Hanno, crushing him at an unnamed battle near a city called Sissa. This victory proved even more successful when the Romans discovered that Hanno had held in his charge nearly all of the possessions of the soldiers serving under Hannibal in Italy, which they had left behind in order to travel light. Besides this, the Romans also captured the luckless Hanno himself, as well as Andobeles, a powerful Spanish chieftain and staunch ally to Carthage. 
These lucrative windfalls were further supplemented by the fact that several Spanish tribes dwelling north of the Ebro, sensing which way the tide was turning, hastily switched sides and joined the Roman army. Bolstered by these Spanish auxiliaries, Gnaeus proceeded to launch seaborne raids along the Iberian coast from his base at Emporium. When Hannibal's brother Hasdrubal, who now ruled Spain as the de facto governor, learned of this new invasion, he marched swiftly from New Carthage across the Ebro to confront it. His scouts reported that the Roman sailors and oarsmen, rendered overconfident by the successes of the army, were leisurely strolling about the countryside near the coast. Taking a vanguard of 8,000 foot and 1,000 horse, Hasdrubal surprised these loiterers, driving them back to the very prows of their ships with great slaughter. Having scored this success, he retired to winter at Nuth Carthage and planned his next move, leaving Gnaeus to continue his raids and sieges of the towns in the interior. More important than either the plunder or the captives Gnaeus gained in these initial clashes was the strategic fact that he had severed the land bridge between Spain and Italy, which Hannibal had taken such pains to establish. We will return to the Spanish theater in later episodes, for in hindsight, Scipio's decision to send his brother on to Spain would prove critical, decisive even, since the Roman presence there would hamper the Carthaginian war effort for years to come. Back in Italy, Hannibal prepared for his own descent into the rich province of Etruria, a name which in antiquity covered portions of what are now Tuscany, Lazio, and Umbria. Here, he hoped by persuasion or intimidation to convince the Etruscans, that proud people who had once ruled over Rome herself, to abandon Rome for the Carthaginian cause. As the local guides discussed the available routes, Hannibal opted for the one that offered the greatest potential for surprise, a road through the marshes of the flooded Arno River. The Arno overflowed its banks on a seasonal basis, but the Carthaginian scouts reported that it was worse than usual, with large sections of the countryside underwater. Undeterred, Hannibal led his men into the heart of the swamps. The ensuing four days and three nights amid the flooded country rivaled the Alpine crossing in the suffering it entailed. Hannibal had placed his Spanish and Libyan contingents, the veteran backbone of his army, as the advance guard with much of the baggage train. His heavy cavalry brought up the rear, leaving his hapless Gallic allies crammed into the middle, just as Hannibal intended. He had grown wary of Gallic support, especially due to their growing disillusion with the Carthaginians, since, though they expected to be led into Roman territory immediately, they had instead been compelled to defend their own lands from Roman reprisals. Polybius reports that Hannibal even had to resort to wearing wigs and disguises to foil Gallic assassination attempts. A truly punic trick, he says with a somewhat obvious sneer. Even if this is an exaggeration, Hannibal's precautions for the march into Etruria show that, although he needed his Gallic auxiliaries, he did not trust them. Livy reports that Hannibal charged his brother Mago to keep the Numidians on the flanks to hold the column together and, more importantly, to keep an eye on the Gauls in case, says Livy, quote, living up to their national character, they should become sick of the hardships involved in a long march and be tempted to slip away 
or refuse to proceed, end quote. At first, Hannibal's careful inquiries into the state of the road proved true, and the Spaniards and Libyans passed over on ground more or less firm. However, as more and more men and beasts trod through the soft ground, pools began to form and the footing grew treacherous. By the time the Gauls arrived, the road had deteriorated into a grimy muck. Livy gives a horrible description of the warrior's plight. Quote, the troops in the van, so long as their guides could keep ahead of them, had a rough time, wading through deep pits and holes filled by swirling eddies from the river, now half drowned in the soft mud, now sinking over heads and ears in the water. Nevertheless, they managed to follow the standards. But the Gauls were quite incapable of keeping their feet or of extricating themselves once the eddies had sucked them in. Without spirit to spur them to effort or hope to give them courage, some dragged themselves on in a state of wretched exhaustion, while others simply lay helpless and hopeless and died where they had fallen, amongst the bodies of drowned or drowning animals. What contributed most of all to the men's exhaustion was the lack of sleep through four days and three nights. The entire region was flooded, and when not a dry spot could be found on which to rest their weary bodies, they piled their gear in heaps and lay on top of it. All they wanted was something which was not underwater, and the heap corpses of the pack animals which had fallen and perished all along the route often gave them a bed of sorts for a few minutes' rest. End quote. The hardships of all were great, especially among the pack animals and elephants. Indeed, all but one of the original 38 elephants which had entered the Alps perished during this crossing. Under these constant strains, even the iron constitution of Hannibal Barca himself succumbed for a time in the miserable stretch of submerged road. His right eye became infected with a severe case of ophthalmia, and he was forced to ride the last surviving elephant, a huge Asiatic beast nicknamed Surus or the Syrian, in a vain attempt to keep himself above the miasma surrounding his army. Nonetheless, Exhaustion and a lack of proper treatment eventually destroyed the sight of his right eye, rendering the general himself one of the numerous casualties of the march through the Arno lowlands. As dawn broke on the fifth day after entering the marshes, however, the Carthaginians at last emerged onto solid ground in Etruria. There, Hannibal found the new Roman consul, Gaius Fulminius, had taken over what remained of Sempronius's four legions, which were now stationed at Eredium. Meanwhile, the other new consul, Gnaeus Servilius Geminus, remained at Rome to raise fresh troops. Flaminius's own road to Etruria had been stormy enough. A novus homo, or new man, in Roman society, Flaminius came from an obscure background and was the first of his family to hold high office. Given his lack of blue-blood credentials, it is unsurprising to find that he had serious conflicts with the Senate, even before taking up his consulship. His own volatile temper exacerbated this tension. Polybius describes him as, quote, the kind of man who courted the favor of the mob, an out-and-out -out demagogue with no talent for the management of warfare in real life, and with excessive self-confidence as well, end quote. Livy adds further color to the picture of Flaminius, 
stating that instead of waiting at Rome for the proper ceremony to invest him as consul for the year, Flaminius, fearing that his senatorial enemies would hold him back in Rome on a pretext, snuck out of the city with the excuse of having business in the countryside. Once clear of the capital, however, he rode on to Aretium to await the time for him to take up his consulship. Normally, the consuls would, in the words of Livy, quote, go abroad only when the guardian deities of their own homes and of the state had sanctioned their authority, only when the Latin festival had been celebrated, when sacrifice had been offered on the Alban Mount, when their vows had been duly performed on the capital. How could a man who had no official position take the auspices? Or, having left the city without their sanction, how could he pretend to take them for the first time upon foreign soil? All this was a cause of anxiety. End quote. Furious at this wanton flouting of Roman tradition and their own authority, the Senate voted unanimously to recall Flaminius, who characteristically refused to answer their summons. Instead, when the time came for him to take up office, Flaminius sacrificed the sacred victims in the provinces instead of at the capital. However, when he tried to cut the calf's throat, the frightened animal broke free from his grasp and splattered the onlookers with blood. The crowd recoiled in horror at this bad omen, but Flaminius, unfazed, proceeded to assume command of the army despite his questionable constitutional status. When Hannibal learned of his opponent's impulsive nature, he immediately set to work to turn it to his advantage. Believing that he could easily provoke Flaminius to battle by plundering the rich Etruscan countryside, Hannibal dispatched raiding parties as soon as his troops had recovered from the arduous marsh crossing. Predictably, Flaminius, upon seeing the smoke rising from the burning hamlets around him, flew into a rage and convened a war council of his officers. He grew angrier when he heard these same subordinates counsel caution due to the enemy's superiority in cavalry and large numbers, advising Flaminius to wait for reinforcements from his colleague Servilius before engaging with Hannibal. Flaminius, however, would have none of it, and mounting his horse, ordered the soldiers to muster in order to pursue the marauding Carthaginians. Even as he did so, his horse stumbled and threw him to the ground. Rising angrier than ever due to his humiliating fall, Flaminius once again ordered the standard-bearers to pick up their insignia and marshal the troops. When they tried to do so, though, one of the standards remained fast in the ground. Horrified at this second omen coming within minutes of the other, the officers remained irresolute until Flaminius cried, quote, Be off with you! Tell them to dig it out if they are too weak with fright to pull it up. End quote. With this undignified beginning, the Romans set off in pursuit. Hannibal, now confident that he could lead Flaminius wherever he wished, marched to Lake Trasimene. Here, in the words of Livy, quote, Nature herself had made a trap for the unwary. End quote. The road ran through a narrow valley flanked by a series of steep, forested hills on one side, and the waters of the lake on the other. The only way into the valley was a narrow entrance on the west, with the only exit being a similarly compact, rocky opening to the east. It was at this exit that Hannibal took up his position 
with his Spanish and Libyan veterans, in full view of the advancing Romans. However, during the night, Hannibal disposed his light troops and the Gallic tribesmen all along the hills to the north of the road, leaving his cavalry near the western entrance to close off the Roman retreat once they had entered into the valley. The following morning, Flaminius, unaware of these sinister preparations and goaded to a frenzy by the sight of the enemy, entered the valley in a marching column without sending any scouts or reconnaissance. To make matters worse, a thick mist from the lake covered the road, preventing the Romans from seeing where they were going. By contrast, the ambushers, perched in the hills above, were able to see over the fog and thus better coordinate their attack. When the last of the Romans had passed through the entrance into the valley, the jaws of Hannibal's trap snapped shut. Livy gives a description of the terrifying carnage which followed. Quote, By the battle cry which arose on every side of them, the Romans knew they were surrounded before they could see the trap had closed. Fighting began in the front and on their flanks before the column had time to form into line of battle, before even their weapons could be made ready or swords drawn. In the chaos that reigned, not a soldier could recognize his own standard or knew his place in the ranks. Indeed, they were almost too bemused to get proper control over their swords and shields, while to some their very armor and weapons proved not a defense but a fatal encumbrance. In that enveloping mist, ears were a better guide than eyes. It was sounds, not sights, they turned to face. The groans of wounded men, the thud or ring of blows on body or shield, the shout of onslaught, the cry of fear. Some, flying for their lives, found themselves caught in a jam of their own men still standing their ground. Others, trying to return to the fight, were forced back again by a crowd of fugitives. In every direction, attempts to break out failed. The mountains on one flank, the lake on the other, hemmed them in, while in front of them and behind stood the formations of the enemy. End quote. To his credit, when the crisis was upon him, Flaminius kept a cool head, struggling to issue orders to his panicked soldiers. However, neither he nor the centurions could make themselves heard over the din and confusion and the battle raged as a chaotic melee, each soldier, in the words of Livy, quote, became his own commander. Familiar tactics, the well-known disposition of forces, were flung to the winds. Legion, cohort, company no longer had any significance. If formations there were, chance alone made them. To fight in front or rear was a matter for the spirit in each breast to decide, end quote. Yet even under these disadvantages, the legionaries, some of whom had fought at Trebia only a few months earlier, held their ground and sold their lives dearly, fighting to the front, sides, and rear with a foe which had emerged from the mist to envelop them on all sides. In the heart of the disaster, Flaminius too made his final stand, seeking ever to rally his men and save them from impending doom. Livy gives the scene of the consul's final moments. Quote, For three long and bloody hours the fight continued, and most furiously of all around the person of Flaminius. His best troops kept constantly at his side, and he was always quick to bring support to any point where he saw his men in trouble or likely to be overwhelmed. 
His dress and equipment made him a conspicuous figure, and the enemy attacks were as determined as the efforts to save him. And so it continued, until a mounted trooper, an insubrian Gaul named Decurius, recognized his face. Calling to his fellow tribesmen, There is the consul, he cried, who destroyed our warriors and laid our towns and fields in ruin. I will offer him as a sacrifice to the ghosts of our people, foully slain. Putting spurs to his horse, he galloped through the thickest of the press, cut down the armor-bearer who had tried to check his murderous intent, and drove his lance through Fulminius's body. Only the shields of some of the veterans of the reserve prevented him from stripping the corpse. End quote. The fall of Flaminius signaled the beginning of a general rout, with men clawing up the hillsides or plunging into the lake, heedless of the heavy armor which bore them to the bottom. Again, it is hard to do better than Livy's description of their flight. Quote, Men tried blindly to escape by any possible way, however steep, however narrow. Arms were flung away, men fell and others fell on top of them. Many, finding nowhere to turn to save their skins, plunged into the edge of the lake till the water was up to their necks, while a few in desperation tried to swim for it, a forlorn hope indeed over that broad lake, and they were either drowned or, struggling back exhausted into the shallow water, were butchered wholesale by the mounted troops who rode to meet them. End quote. Only 6,000 Roman soldiers at the head of the column managed to maintain their formation and cut their way through the Carthaginian lines. Their respite was brief, however, for Marhabal and his cavalry soon surrounded them and forced their surrender too. In all, 15,000 Romans died along the shores of Lake Trasimene with a further ten to 15,000 captured or scattered over the countryside. In stark contrast, the Carthaginian losses were relatively slight. Polybius says they lost 1,500 men, while Livy sets it at a higher figure of 2,500. Once again, most of the casualties came from the lightly armored Gauls, leaving Hannibal's veterans and his cavalry corps virtually intact. When the prisoners were brought before him, Hannibal once again gave the Italians their freedom without ransom, delivering the same speech he had at Trebia regarding his efforts to liberate them from the Roman yoke. The Roman prisoners were once again maltreated and refused ransom. Hannibal then buried his dead, leaving the Romans to rot, save for the body of Flaminius, which he searched for to give a funeral befitting the consul's rank. However, Despite diligent searches, the consul's body was never found, but remained mingled with that of the common soldiers on the shores of Trasimene. When news reached Rome of the disaster, the people were nearly speechless. For over a century, Roman arms had enjoyed a series of nearly unbroken victories over all their opponents, but now they had suffered two devastating defeats in quick succession. People thronged into the forum, asking their neighbors for news and spreading wild rumors. The Senate remained silent and gave them no answers, save for the praetor, Marcus Pomponius, who near sunset said simply, We have been beaten in a great battle. An agonizing wait followed as the Senate debated from sunrise to sunset what should be done. Meanwhile, the Roman people waited anxiously for news of their loved ones, 
fathers, sons, brothers, and friends, and whether they had survived the battle. During the next few days, says Livy, quote, the crowd at the gates was composed of more women than men, waiting and hoping for the sight of some loved face, or at least for news. They pressed around any chance comer, hungry for tidings, and nothing could tear them away, especially if it was a friend or acquaintance, until they had tried to get every detail from beginning to end. The expression on their faces as they walked away told plainly enough the nature of the news they had received, as did the people who, as they returned home, pressed round them to congratulate or to console. It was the women who were the most affected, either by joy or grief. One woman, we are told, suddenly confronted at her door by a son who had come home alive, died before his eyes. Another, who had been wrongly informed that her son had been killed, was sitting sadly in her house when the young man suddenly came in, and the shock of excessive joy killed her. End quote. Greater woe followed when news came two days later that a cavalry detachment, 4,000 men strong, under the remaining consul Servilius, had been surprised a few days after Trasimene as they hurried along the road to join Flaminius, who, unbeknownst to them, was dead. Even the stoical senate was shaken by this further catastrophe. It was the final blow. The situation was indeed critical. Debate ceased, and the senate resolved to resort to, quote, a remedy which for many years had been neither wanted nor applied, end quote. The Senate suspended the Roman Constitution and appointed one man as supreme commander to helm the state in her dark hour of crisis, a dictator. The defense of Italy had failed, Livy says simply. The war henceforward would be at home to save the city. Next time, we will see how the first Roman dictator in nearly 40 years met the challenge of Hannibal ad Portus. Hannibal at the gates. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>